The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, a story of bringing journalism to the net and the web today. Lisa Napoli got a job straight out of college at CNN in its earliest days, which is a crazy startup story in its own right. But then she worked for a time at Delphi, which was an early online service and competitor to AOL and Prodigy that I don't think we've covered much here before. And then she helped bring the New York Times online with Cyber Times, which, as she says, is forgotten to history even by the New York Times itself. Then she was on to MSNBC, a crazy hybrid tech and media startup that I also don't think we've discussed much on the show either. There's just so many great anecdotes and stories here. Please enjoy this excellent conversation with Lisa Napoli. Lisa Napoli, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. I can't believe internet and history are in the same sentence. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, we're we're discovering that if something's 20 or 25 years old, it is history. It really is. Um, <sighs> yes. So let's, uh, let's start with the background, Bonafides. Um, you went to college for, I guess it was a liberal arts degree, but you tell me about this it looked like maybe your degree was like news and different kinds of media or something like that yeah before that was a thing i went to this little i grew up in brooklyn and flatbush oh cool before it was cool to uh-huh. be from there yeah and um back in the 70s and uh you know the dark times of new york not the boom times like it is now and i went to this little school in amherst massachusetts that at the time was only a couple to a decade old, Hampshire College, where you can make up your own major. There were no grades or tests. And I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Growing up in New York, I, I grew up in the household of a father who was an actor uh, and, and media person. He didn't make a living as an actor, but he was always in the theater, loved the media, listened to talk radio, uh, was obsessed with newspapers, always came home with arms full of them. So what was I going to do? Become a journalist. And I didn't know which medium I liked best, but in 84, when I was getting out of school, newspapers, and this is quaint and funny to think about now, were on the decline. In 84, it was considered kind of risky to go into the newspaper business because they were in this transition because they'd been slammed by TV. Um, but I studied all of the things in, in, in college because I was intrigued by television. I was intrigued by print. I Print is my first love. And as I say, I grew up listening to talk radio and I lucked into an internship by complete accident at this new startup in 1981 called CNN that nobody had in the boroughs, the outer boroughs in New York, because few people had cable in 1981 in the outer boroughs in New York. And actually cable penetration all around the country was pretty low back right, then. Right. I don't know the exact numbers. Yeah. So so I was uh, privileged and dumb, uh, luck, dumb, dumb, dumb luck 
to, to walk into an internship at a place that was called Chicken Noodle News, you know, deridingly at the time, uh, nobody knew what it was. Uh, and that's different from the CNN issues today. But so CNN was in the World Trade Center, the base of the old World Trade Center that was, of course, destroyed in 2001. Um, who knew that was going to happen back then? And I, I was an internship intern there. Then I interned in the DC bureau in 82 and then back again in 83. So the logical place for me to get a job with this degree in news and different media when I got out of school after all this free labor I'd given CNN was Atlanta, which was then the epicenter of CNN at that point. It was only four years old. Headline news had started in 82 and that's where I went to work. So yeah, college for me, that's a long-winded way of saying college for me was really just a means to getting out and making a living. I didn't have a lot of money. I couldn't afford to stay in school forever. I, I actually got out of school as fast as I could in three and a half years and went right to work for the lucrative sum of $11,000 a year <laughs> in Atlanta in 1984 as a video journalist, which is what they called the young kids coming out of school who were just eager to work any hour and, and work in the 24-7 news cycle, such as it was back then. So I I think you've, you've listened to some episodes, so you know I, I can't resist this. Uh, you're, you're the only person that I've, I believe I've ever talked to that worked at CNN, period, but especially CNN when it's, like you said, a startup. So I guess um, my usual sort of blanket questions like um, – what was the culture like? Did it feel like a startup as we would think of it today? Like, what, what was what was CNN like in, in 1984? Well, it's funny, Brian. I mean, and that's why I'm so excited about what you're doing. But also at now in my mid 50s, looking back on my career, thinking how I've always been at startups. Hampshire College was really technically a startup college, even though it was 10 years old when I went there in 1980. Um, and then there I am, my first job out of school, even while I was in school, was at this startup network. And I didn't know from startups the way I came to know from startups. But startups, you know, even before the technological revolution that is the sort of heat of what you talk about, uh, sorry, vegetarian, is they're great. Places that are, are not charted, uncharted waters are great. They're not for everybody, but it sets me on the course. Or maybe I was just wired that's why I went to Hampshire to begin with and sought out a job at CNN to begin with. These places that haven't been fully formed, where there aren't, you know, there isn't some guy who's been in the job for 25 years that you're taking over because he's retiring, are really exciting. They're really maddening and they're really difficult. But they're really, really great. And CNN at that point, because it was, it really was like the internet was 20 years ago. It was this embryonic world that didn't exist before. And it's really hard for anybody of any age to remember that there was a time that the whole idea of 24-7 news on television was shockingly revolutionary. But it was just close to 40 years ago, and uh, nobody knew what the heck to put on it. The, the people, I'm writing a book right now about the origins of CNN. Um, nobody knew what to put on the air. The, the guys who were starting it didn't know what to put on. They were just kind of making it up as, as they went along, and that was really exciting. It's also chilling, and we could discuss you know, the implications, as you have in previous episodes, of always on culture on every facet of our lives, but um, but it was at the moment in time uh, a thrill, and and uh, everybody who worked there at that moment in time, and I'd say that's true up for the you know the, the first ten years of CNN, would tell you the same same thing. Well, you know what I am curious about because other um, other people that I've spoken to about bringing journalism to the web um, have have talked about <clears throat> what is uh, the the mindset shift that had to take place to this 24-7, to this idea that the news never stops, that there's not a, an edition, you know, coming out or something like that. But it, it, so right. at CNN, you're already steeped in that um, in the 80s, even before, before the web. Yes, yes. And, you know, hearing you just even articulate it the way you just did makes me think, you know what's different today? Today, a journalist 
uh, of any age who's working on any stage, but particularly nationally, is really a one-person band. You have to tweet, you have to write, you maybe have to take a picture every once in a while, or if you do, it's not a problem. Um, back then, that that easing in, back then meaning the CNN part of of, of history, uh, there were still people who were doing all of the different jobs, and no one person was expected to work endlessly. Like, really, basically, people are expected to work now. You can't miss a story. You can't miss a beat. Uh, then, of course, there was a shift. And maybe the star anchor or when Baghdad was bombed, maybe there was an occasion that people worked endlessly in the field. But, but it was still a new enough conceit that you were working, that, that, that you were providing news as an outlet. 24-7, that nobody expected, you know, you, yes, you worked long hours. I, I covered the shuttle Challenger from the newsroom and at CNN, as did many of us. And yes, we worked crazy hours, had to you know, turn around tape very quickly, but it was a different mentality than it is today because we weren't, now it's a given that everything's 24-7. People go to the bathroom with their iPhone, you know, people who were working journalists on deadline today are impossible to have a meal with because they're constantly looking at their phones, constantly tweeting content. That, that wasn't, obviously available then. And it, the mindset, I really do think it was a shift into that mindset that has happened gradually over over the years because the technology allowed it. Well, I, I just want to poke yeah. at this. I, I want to poke at this a little bit more before we move on. But it, it, because it, it, I remember I remember that the Challenger exploding. And so like the concept was still that there could be busy news periods, but there would always be lulls. And it, it it makes me think that, like, in 1986, there wasn't a CNBC either, you know? So, like, right. the, the fact that there's always news that can happen, and it wasn't a global world. Like, we didn't know in 1986 what was going on in half the world with China or Russia, you know? So, um, right. it, the <clears throat> what, you're, what you're describing is that even though you, you had to work hard, it wasn't a world where news could even be made every hour of every day. Almost. Right. And, it, and exactly. And in fact, when CNN was launching all of the you know press tours that Ted Turner and Reese Schoenfeld, the first president of CNN, uh, who's unfortunately often lost to history, as they were trouncing around talking about this revolutionary new idea, people were like, what, what the hell are you going to put on the air for 24 seven? Now, nobody would ever ask that question. But then um even people in the journalism industry couldn't imagine that there would be news that would fill the time. And they worried about it. So what they did was they contracted with a bunch of what newspapers would be columnists to do video essays, so to speak, uh, so that when there wasn't anything happening, uh, they'd run those kinds of things on different you know, topics, different threads. But what happened was they found out almost the minute they flipped the switch on June 1st, 1980, that they didn't need those things. Of course, they did run them. And Elsa Clench, who was famously a style reporter, uh, you know, there are these long packages from I remember. shows all I around remember. the world. Yeah, you remember yeah. that? Yeah. They're great. They're kitschy now. They were great then, if you, even if you didn't care. They, you know, they just sort of punctuated the freneticism of the news. Um, but you know, and yes, and then all of a sudden Reagan would get shot. The president got shot in 1981 and not long after being inaugurated and the newsroom went wild and CNN was an industry joke at that point, or really not even a joke. It was pretty much unknown and they had to scramble and fight and scramble and gradually over the course of you know, now, of course, four decades, but that, that first decade, especially, uh, they had to you know, they had to figure out how to make it all work, all add up. Um, and again, now that that would never be, I don't think, a concern. Obviously, you know, I'm sure well, I won't I won't speculate about what the staffing is like at these places. But well, I, I worked at MSNBC, too. And yeah, it was deader at night, overnight than it was. Well, listen, what, what, clearly the answer is um we need this CNN history uh, book that you're writing. 
<laughs> because as far as I know, and I tend to read these things, there's not a, a really good one. There's that good book of a history of, e, of ESPN, but I'm not aware of like a great, or and I've read a couple uh, great histories of uh, Ted Turner, but uh, okay. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm encouraging you to please <laughs> get that book out. Um, so thank you. Back, back to, um, back to our purposes here for today. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, your, your career continues and you, you're in, is it mostly television, um, journalism? Yeah. So what happened was, um, there was this core group of people, the CNN originals who launched CNN. And then there were the originals who launched headline news. Mm-hmm. And then there were hangers on or later, later comers like me, um, early, but not original. And as people left CNN, they went on to other great things and they'd hire you. So I went to work for my CNN boss, Paul Amos, who was passed over for the top job at CNN and wound up being a field producer in TV for him, covering Waco and uh, the Clinton campaign and all kinds of stuff like that. And then um, I went on and did work for medical news network outlets that don't exist any longer. And eventually that's uh, time marched on and I cobbled together a good freelance living, which is very difficult to do today because rates have been slashed in every medium, mostly in television, but, but in print, I was always writing whenever I could for whomever I could. And then somehow or not somehow I went to work for actually you'll find this interesting that's why I love talking to you I went to work one of my old CNN people got me connected to Q2 which Mm. was an experimental offshoot of QVC Mm -hmm. now QVC also you know again back to the startup QVC was established and entrenched at the time in the mid 90s when I went to work for them but this was Barry Diller's offshoot called Q2. Barry Diller had made a lot of money. I have to think about exactly how for a second with the CBS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So Barry Diller had made a lot of money and sunk it into QVC and, and into, no, you know what? Take it back. I'm screwing up a bunch of media details. But <laughs> the point is that a bunch of TV people I've been working with wound up being hired by Q2, which was supposed to be cool, hip, shopping on television. This is before we shopped online. And they hired a bunch of TV field producers like me, not people who worked in, in online, I'm sorry, on television retailing, but people who were TV news field producers, people worked, working crazy deadlines. And I was the last one hired. So I got the, the departments in this on-air department sort of that no one else wanted, which was books, music, and electronics. Mm. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. Those things were the easiest things to sell on television because I don't need to touch a book. Mm-hmm. And this is again before people were, you know, now people buy, God knows what they they buy everything on online. But back then, there was this crazy culture of, oh, I'm never going to buy a pair of shoes on a television from a television show. I'm not going to buy perfume from a television show. I'm not going to buy housewares from a television show. But of course, QVC, there were people buying jewelry and all kinds of stuff from QVC, a certain kind of person. But this Q2 was designed for hip people, and we hired hip people as show hosts, and my department went gangbusters because when I was selling country music, I would hire a bunch of line dancers in cowboy hats and they'd come out on the set at Silver Cup Studios in New York and, and they'd dance and twirl and the set, the, the host would, you know, very engagingly discuss the music of Patsy Klein or the disco or whatever we were selling. And, and late at night, people, you know, sitting around drinking, lonely, who knows what, bought this stuff. And the thrill of working in the control room was watching the TV screen uh, in front of me, the the, the computer monitor in front of me, and seeing the product fly off the virtual shelves. It was such a thrill, and people made fun of it. And but it was it was it was extremely exciting, and it was the precursor to online shopping. Well, I was going to say, you know, Jeff Bezos made the same calculation, starting with books and then only expanding into other media like CDs and things like that. (laughs) Again, the calculation was those are things that are goods that no one has to like hold in their hand before they're willing to purchase. (laughs) The the analogy is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, and we crazy people who went to work for Q two. Maybe Jeff Bezos saw us one night. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, yes, it was 
it, I can I can attest to that. I saw it happen. It was a lot of fun. It was a nutso place. Uh, it was filled with all kinds of interesting people. You know, set dressers, set, uh, window dressers from the best department stores in New York were paid a lot of money to come work at this place because they wanted the best looking sets, basically work. You know, the products on TV. And then there were people like me, and then lots of young art students and. Everything in between. It was it was a really and retailer of buyers from department stores, mm-hmm. um, and we did we did all of this in the mid nineties. And that's when I when that went out of business, which invariably it was going to do because that's a complicated story about cable carriage and all of that. I um, that's when I got internet fever and got my dream job. Well, so okay, um, I, I'm not sure if I have this right. Uh, but looking, I'm, all I have is your LinkedIn to go by. Before we I get... drop a lot of it off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I well... have to drop a lot of my email, my resume off, and I'll say this on your podcast. Yeah. I'm not ashamed because there's ageism. Yeah. And if I told people all the places I've worked that I've been working since 1984, it's hard enough for me to get work now. I no one would ever talk to me. So I'm coming out on your podcast saying I've done <laughs> what they tell you to do, which is lob off. 10 years of your life at least unfortunately it's bad but yeah, true. yeah. um because those stories are interesting and i think it makes me a more interesting hire or a person you know to have worked at these places but well, anyway agreed sorry. agreed no um well but so i'm gonna take a stab is before we get to the new york times um is the first sort of web thing that you do is that with news corp yes okay yeah so another old colleague from CNN, my old friend, Mark Benaros, went to work. He, he'd been hiring me to write at Prodigy. And, uh, you know, there was a strange band of people, mm-hmm. not a musical band, who, as you talk about often here, were online early. And I had a computer and I was online dialing up, uh, dialing up to Prodigy and writing for Prodigy. And the rates were great. And Mark knew I wanted to write. And so he he assigned me work, and, and that was great. And then he went to work for Delphi. Want me to describe uh, Delphi? No, I mean, so, I mean, just just to catch up, like, uh, everyone maybe remembers AOL. Prodigy was a little before AOL. We've talked about Prodigy a lot on the show. Delphi, um, who owned – oh, that was that was Rupert Murdoch's because Genie was GE's. Okay, so Delphi was so- – go ahead. Delphi became Rupert Murdoch. Okay. It wasn't oh, always yeah. Rupert Murdoch. Right, right, right. And right. Delphi was the first uh, dial-up to the internet if you weren't a an academic. Mm-hmm. And it was out of Boston. And Murdoch, it, it's so much like, oh, my God, it's just... It, it, history repeats itself. Right now, cannabis is big, and the cannabis business is big, and everybody says they're first, first, first. Well, Delphi was the first, first, first dial-up dial up for non-academics to the web. And uh, from there, Murdoch was hot, hot, hot to get online, and someone advised him to buy Delphi. And so they brought in a whole bunch of News Corp people, and among them, um, you know, m- among the hires was my friend who was not a News Corp person, Mark Benaroff. He became a News Corp person, and and we were charged this team of people with moving over News Corp properties to the digital world. Again, today it sounds like okay, there's a whole team of people out there. We're going to go hire the best and the brightest. There were no best and brightest. <laughs> no one had ever done that stuff before. So we were the idiots who had to go to all the News Corp properties and say, look, those of you who know are tied up maybe with AOL or CompuServe. People have been doing deals to put their quote unquote content on. This is when the word content started coming on and it's a horrible word, but it's, you know, it's part of history or part of life now, but they would make deals to put their stuff up on these proprietary online services. And we had to go under Murdoch's mandate to uh, all the Fox properties. I had to fly out to LA all the time and talk to the Fox properties here and evangelize the net and say, uh, you know, Hey, 
News Corp property, Fox or fill in the blank property. We're we're here and we want you to work with us. And they'd say, but AOL is paying us a million dollars a year to put the X-Files online. And we'd say, well, Rupert says that's too bad. You have to do business with us too. So it was really that wild, wild west period where this group of us uh, dealt with these properties and also were dealing with ignorance because of course, most people had no idea what online was. Uh, and that was an exciting and maddening time. Now, I have to think for a second about, uh, oh, gosh, please don't quote me on this, but I'm trying to think of, mm-hmm. uh, oh, oh, MCI. So right, yep. what happened was, yep, so, so we were humming along, bleeding money. You know, it was one of those, again, startup situations, money lunches. Crazy lunches, crazy naming, uh, not, uh, uh, what's the exercise you do when you're naming yourself? Branding. You know, they had a, they and, wanted to yeah. rebrand yeah, it. Yeah. 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 You know, are you a Jaguar? Or are you a Volkswagen? <laughs> or yeah. that kind of thing. And so they'd come up with, they had to come up with names because of trademark issues that were different than Delphi. So it was just, it was, it was a thrilling, exciting wacko time where they, we took over the old what's now the bed bath and beyond building on Sixth and mm-hmm. 18th street. And, um, it, it was, it was just great and, and crazy. And then MCI tied up with Murdoch and then all hell broke loose and you had executives from every direction who, you know, one of those mixing of corporate cultures kind yeah. of things and it didn't work and one day i was out talking to seth godin of all people before seth godin was a a multimillionaire from selling his stuff to yahoo mm-hmm. and b you know became a cult leader he's a fabulous you know inspirational speaker so i was talking to him and my beeper went off <laughs> one of those beepers with those little digital readouts, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. And, and the HR person was saying, where are you? I need to talk to you. And of course I was out in Westchester and I came back into the city and walked into the newsroom and I was part of a group of people who were just basically fired because, you know, we've been spending too much money and someone finally realized it was crazy and no one knew why. But again, it was that startup thing, you know, throw money at it and, get a bunch of people. I was hiring people from Q2, young production assistants, and told to double their salaries. If they'd been making 25 grand at Q2, <laughs> yeah. I had to pay them 50 grand, even though they didn't know anything about yeah, online, yeah, yeah. even though they didn't know. So that's, yeah. So I did that and that fell apart. Well, yeah, so, I, I'm going to, I'm because it's been actually several years since I reread about all this stuff or whatever. I have Wikipedia open at the moment, but like it, there's a whole saga, like you mentioned, with the MCI thing. And it's funny because Murdoch always, over the last 25 years or so, like with digital stuff, he always gets hot on it. And then he drops it like a hot potato and he's convinced that he's brilliant because he's like, well, that was that was a fad, you know, like think of MySpace, you know, so like when he gets hot on it again, then he thinks he's a genius because he got in at the right time. But then he drops it like a hot potato. So anyway, I'm going to I'm going to well, yeah, no, but I, I have to I have to say something because I am no defender of Rupert Murdoch and I certainly don't know the man, but I just want to say that having been on the inside at Mm -hmm. a number of these places and we haven't started talking about MSNBC yet, I don't know who's really behind, you know, I don't know who's directing those things. And I've Mm. lived enough now through enough hot, 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 you know, we got to do it, got to do it kind of scenarios that who the hell knows how these decisions get made. I think a lot of them are like, you know, Prince, Harry running off and getting married. I mean, it's like you two go get a room and then get married in two years when you get it over with. And or that's like, how or it like is some thing. some young executive trying to make their career because they're championing this or something, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or some some higher up, and it could be a Murdoch saying, "Oh my God, everybody's talking about X. We better dive in." And yeah, some young guy go out and, or hopefully woman, go out and find me the X that fits whatever bill I'm supposed to be finding. And then, you know, in six months when you find out it's not viable, you dump it. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's a possibility there. I, I wasn't at the highest level, so I can't yeah. say for sure. But yes, I, I understand what you're saying about all of it. I mean, yeah. 
And I didn't even tell you, we don't have to talk about the Fox News service, which was the precursor to the Fox News channel that I worked for. Who did, who, did that, who did that feed? Which I'm assuming that was a feeder to some sort of online like AOL or Genie or, or Delphi. No, no, this is a, te- a television thing. And this mm. was Mur- Murdoch's bean counter saying, wait a second, we are buying video. By then, CNN was, you know, an admirable force. And somebody realized that all the Fox affiliates, and this is during the whole dissolution of the affiliate rule that happened. And so you had all these Fox affiliates that had started newscasts and they needed video and they didn't have a huge network and they were buying it. You know, like they subscribed to the AP. They've also subscribed to CNN for as a wire service for video news. And some bean counters said, that's ridiculous. Why are we giving money to CNN? Let's start our own. I don't remember what the money, the sum was, but they moved that money over, hired one of my, my boss, Paul Amos from Headline News. And then he hired in turn a bunch of people who worked for CNN to, to create a news service for, that fed the Fox affiliates. And it didn't air on television. And that's another thing I don't have on my resume because, you know, Fox. Ah! <laughs> but it wasn't Fox, Roger Ailes, polarizing people screaming, Bill Riley, Fox. It was a new, literally a news service. It was a startup. Uh, that was cre- and it was another startup. Yeah. So it was fun. And I got to cover the Clinton campaign. And, yeah, we were roundly humiliated on, on in the field because the networks actually that's a whole other story but anyway yeah so sorry for the tangent no but no it no is. i get you because it was at the time it was everyone knew fox it was the bart simpson network but um yep so all right let's actually it's still tracy tracy what's her name tracy allman tracy yeah yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah, yeah. Bart Simpson yet. It was more Tracy Ullman. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, <laughs> I, 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 what, what? I, let's go to uh, how do you how do you land at the New York Times then? So, so we got a bunch of us got trounced out of Delphi, um, which had never changed its name, and I think the name they chosen was Grand Central. But a bunch of us got kicked out of the place, and I'm sort of running around. And all I know for sure is that there's a lot of stuff happening around the digital space in New York. And I started going to media bistro parties held by Laurel Toby. I started going to um, all these digital mixers. I got entrenched in what was happening. And it was a small group of people. Internet world would happen. Everybody was was talking about this kind of stuff who was interested in it, of course. It was a core group of people. And, you know, it wasn't Silicon Valley only. It was Silicon, what what do they call it? Silicon Alley, I think is what they Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. called it. And uh, Jason Calacanis and all these people running around who now are famous young startups then. And, And I got a connection to the New York Observer, and I went in and saw... Uh, Arthur Carter, the founder of, and the owner of, actually, I don't know that he's the founder. I found, I I went in and talked to Arthur Carter, who ran, uh, who owned the New York Observer, and he was intrigued and sent me to his editor, who said, I don't care about this stuff. Um, Arthur Carter had had me write three sample columns. The editor didn't care. Peter Kaplan didn't care about dot-com stuff. So I was holding these three articles about this exciting time in, in media in New York. And by complete accident, one of the nice men who have mentored me over the years sent me to another man who another, to another man named Bernie Gorsman, who was um, a New York times veteran newsman who had been sent over from the paper to start uh, cyber. Uh, I'm sorry, to start the New York times electronic media companies journalistic out, outlet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. basically, uh, and you've talked to Martin Nissenholz, who yeah. ran that outfit. And uh, Bernie connected me to Rob Fixmer, who was the editor of Cyber Times, which was this web-only section. Of right, the because they, they had been doing stuff with AOL and other people previously, right? Yes, and they had, I think at that point, they had the fax services that they did. They had been experimenting with digital transmission, but this was their first website. And literally, it had to be built up the street from the New York Times, the main New York Times on 43rd Street, Mm -hmm. because there were all these job categories that didn't exist 
uh, at the paper itself, and the paper was a union shop. And, you know, perhaps most famously, Meredith Artley, who now is head of CNN.com and has had an incredible career. She's an, a formidable person, was a young, one of the young producers at a team of producers at that section, or I'm sorry, at that outfit, whose job it was to move stuff over from the paper onto the. And you would think, of course, uh, you just move it, right? But they needed people to literally move it and format mm -hmm. it over to the web. And so this little section that I worked for called Cyber Times, Cyber Times was designed to give people a reason to go online because the thinking was, why would I just go read what I could read in the newspaper online? Of course, that's hilariously funny now, too, to think about. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, the paper was just worried that nobody would go to the website unless you had something original there. And so uh, I was part of this small team of people who were charged with creating original stories. And there, it was so hard for them to get people who wanted to write online-only stories for The New York Times that they had to pay us obscene sums of money hmm. um, because most, most credible journalists didn't right. want to be affiliated with the web. Well, because they're, they're thinking you're in a backwater. And, and, and also, as I've pointed out other times on the show and other people have pointed out, there had been 20 years of experiments with digital going back to all sorts of stuff like that Knight Ritter did back in the late 70s, early 80s. So like, if you're a journalist of any kind of reputation, it's like, oh, I want to be a part of that um, experimental digital thing that's going to fold up in three to five years or something. So I get it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And most of us were young-ish and eager to get a byline in the New York Times that may not have gotten one otherwise. And, you know, work is work. And I needed work. And I was thrilled to have the work. And it paid and well. It paid really well, and it paid so well that I and I was creating so much, so many stories. I was doing two or three stories a week that eventually some accountant said, you know, a lot of the people who were writing were doing one-off columns because they were doing other stuff. They were smart. They weren't trying to survive on journalism, but I was. And so I would do two, three stories a week, getting paid 750 bucks a story, which is enormous back then uh and now i mean nobody pays that yeah i was gonna say tell pathetic, that to a right? blogger yeah right yeah it's pathetic so so i was churning out all these stories and some bean counter said uh and that's rude i don't mean to call people who do money bean counters because they're enormously important part of the equation but somebody said who is this woman we're paying her too much money just put her on staff and so i became the first and only because, of course, another startup, this startup got decimated. Ultimately, I became the first and only staff reporter of the New York Times Cyber Times, which is not circuits. And everybody once they created circuits, confused circuits with Cyber Times. But it wasn't that. OK, uh, I, my right. colleague. Yeah. I need I want to pause oh. here because there's a couple things that I want to I want to figure out, lay the, lay the groundwork for. So okay. before we get into actually what you're covering and stuff like that, but. So number one, um, they this is not um, this is not repurposing uh, print material because you know again a lot of other people that I've talked to like that's the obvious first thing that you do when you move online we'll just you know bring over what you did in, in the in the morning edition but from from day one of you being there your task is to create online only stuff. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. is that like leaning heavily on like multimedia? Because again, that's sort of like what the promise of, of going digital is. A little bit, but of course this was so embryonic back then. What was the promise of the, the robustness of the medium was nothing like it is today. So I'll, right. I can send you a couple of examples of animated gifts or um, I did this, uh, I went to a field in, in, uh, Almira in outside of Amsterdam and covered this hacking convention uh, called Hacking in Progress. Where people literally set up the world's largest non-military outdoor Ethernet, and you set up your tent and you got a cable <laughs> plugged in, and people were computing from their tents. 
So I covered that for mm-hmm. the times. And we did a multimedia extravaganza where I had some little videos. And then I did an, um, and a lot of photographs. And then I did one on the closing of the 43rd Street presses. They moved all the presses out of the 43rd Street mm-hmm. building. This is before they moved out of the 43rd Street building. And we had some audio um, and incredible archival stuff about the printing presses at the New York Times. And that was a multimedia extravaganza, but it looks nothing like the beautiful multimedia extravaganzas that the Times and other outlets do today. They, it was the best we could do then, but there was you know, not, nothing as sophisticated as, as what you see today. Right, but yes, right. we were charged with experimenting and I'm just throwing out what I worked on and I can yeah, tell you yeah. what some of my colleagues did too. But, but um, yeah, so, so what was... And this was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, this is 96? 96. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I, I want to get into what you're you're, you're covering because you know you're here to tell your story. One more thing, uh, just mm-hmm. as grounding, um, th- that detail that you mentioned about um, that the union shop angle, I had I've not yeah. heard from anyone else, but that makes so much sense to me. That again, it's a union company, so there is, there's literally not a job title in ninety five ninety six for like webmaster or <laughs> or uh, software right. engineer, and, and so. Um, I'm curious, obviously there's sort of, a lot of people talk about like the institutional, um, not animosity, but like, what are you, what is your unit, Cyber Times, within the larger company? You said it was off-site, like, so what are, what are you thought of, like, how do other people within the paper think of you and the company think of you, or or even especially, maybe, what do your bosses think of you, or the editors? Well, so, they're multi-layer question. So first of all, and I've talked to Adam Nagorny, who's writing a book about contemporary New York Times, mm-hmm. fabled New York Times reporter currently working on a book. And I've talked to him about this time. And uh, Bernie Gortzman wrote a memoir a couple of years ago. And basically, the paper didn't know what the hell was going on. Most of the people at the paper didn't know that this was happening. They didn't care. They were the New York Times what is this computer thing? We don't want to be bothered with it. Now, of course, that I don't mean to make it sound like everybody was ignorant and disinterested, but most people were because it was just this tangential thing, like the fax thing, you know, cruise ship fax, New York Times edition. That was a technology that they didn't have to be bothered with. They were breaking their stories and winning their Pulitzer Prizes and being the New York Times. And there was, you know, this thing happening that was not interesting to most people, which was happening in other newsrooms too. And of course, this is the New York Times, which is New York Times and has different resources. But USA Today had a similar issue. Their people were, I'm told, in a different location. Wall Street Journal, I mean, we might want to verify all this, but I've heard that the Wall Street Journal, but but it was a weird time because, yes, no one knew how to classify what was going on. Although in our case with Cyber Times, which was a piece of this larger New York Times electronic media company, Cyber Times was basically another section of the New York Times, except that it had nothing to do with the paper. And the people who ran it were actual editors from the New York Times. So they had that grounding and imprimatur, you know, they, they, the pedigree. But uh, all of my colleagues who wrote for the New York Times, Cyber Times, were virtual and spread out around the world and had had nothing to do with the paper before. So as far as how people reacted to us, A, much of the time people didn't even know we existed, if they knew we existed. Mm -hmm. And that started to happen as my colleague broke stories. Uh, You know, my colleague might break a story and Rob Fixner, the editor, might tell the newsroom, hey, you know, my person is breaking a story. Um, And the people are like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, of course, but but it was it was a rogue outfit. It was a rogue outfit. Now, we were not really our mandate wasn't to break news. You know, it wasn't like we were setting up a a parallel shadow newsroom to the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Um, we were basically covering stories digitally focused 
that we were we surmised would be of interest to the person who was an early adopter to a website, the New York Times website. Remember, too, in the early days of the web, people didn't know what to go look at. What was I going to go look at on the web before I really knew what the web was? So they would go to established brands. Have you ever done it? You've done the story with Josh Quitner, haven't you? About I haven't talked about Josh yet. No, no, no. Oh my God. Okay. Well, I won't. I won't go off on that. But but that time, that moment in time, um, people are going on the web, and and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how he registered. Yeah. yeah. So so people were going. On he registered. I'm sorry. So, I'm I'm gonna interrupt. He registered the domain yeah. name. Blah blah blah. Which was a thing you could do at a period of time. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. So so. So when people were getting online, they didn't know what to look at. So they would go to websites that were associated with brands they knew. And so if you were going to go on the web in the mid-90s, the late 90s, you might go to the New York Times website because, heck, I read the New York Times. What do they have online? Or maybe I can read the paper online. How innovative that would be. And so we were there to give this extra boost to, you know, what really was not necessary. The New York Times in and of itself was a perfectly complete and fantastic entity, but we were there to help add to it and make people feel excited about being on the web. And sure enough, there were people, other crazy people like us, who, you know, saw the religion of the web early on and would read what we were writing. And my colleagues were writing really great things. They just happened to be for the web about art and law and science. But with a, um, but what you're saying is, is that with a, with a technological sort of twinge, because you're assuming that that's what people would want, right? Right. Although not even with the twinge so much as the stories we selected were mm-hmm. um, maybe more likely to be, be appealing to some yeah it's it i'm not sure if i'm articulating the nuance because it is a different nuance it wasn't yeah. like we were uh, a computer magazine at right, all we right. were lay pe- you know we were targeting lay people and to that end i had been asked the very first assignment i got was to write this column called hyperwalkie i picked it up from a guy named gary brickman who'd originated the column but the column basically hyperwalkie was also basically web 101 and every saturday i would write this crazy little wacky romp that was mostly about writing and hyperlinking to teach people what hyperlinking was because people didn't you know now everybody's used to clicking 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 within a story or you know lead one story leading you to another but that wasn't the case in the late 90s so this story was one way of getting people uh, inculcated to the whole idea. I mean, even though it wasn't prescriptive, but the whole idea was to make it a fun story uh, that well, made or, or even just, people what you could. Right. I was going to say, just tell people, hey, um, here's a cool thing that I that you can now do on the web. You know, like uh, entire yep. companies were built on that, like Yahoo, of course. You know, there's this cool thing yep. that you can now do. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Because it was all, it was, you know, like the first phone call. Watson, whatever, you know, it was, it was, it was all about playing around with this new medium. And as a sideline, what happened while we were playing around with this new medium was the secure digital music initiative, which gave way to Napster and all these things kept unfolding on our watch, the dot-com business run-up. Uh, as I say, zillions of still unresolved legal issues that had never been, you know, anticipated before. So it was exciting because I, I, I broke a story about eBay selling guns. Uh, mm. Nobody had, you know, eBay was new. And so people I went vaguely eBay remember and that. Yeah. Sold stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I also broke another story. Uh, Tim McVeigh, a sailor named Tim McVeigh, not the Oklahoma City bomber, who was gay and was outed online and Mm. kicked out of the Navy because he was outed online because he was in a chat room and had identified um, himself as gay in the chat room, a private space. Uh, And and then also another story just came back to me, AOL. AOL at that point was relying on unpaid moderators to run its chat. And a bunch of them, or a couple of them, sued AOL. 
And that was a big story of its day. And we did it. We did the story. And these were the kinds of stories. I'm citing my own. My colleagues did such amazing work. Um, they, they, we were all doing this kind of work. And the paper may or may not have been paying attention to it because it just wasn't, it hadn't risen to the fore yet uh, in, in, main, in the mainstream. But then all of a sudden, like everything else, it just switched. And even my father, my late father was so wise. He said, you know what? As soon as this becomes a utility, you're not going to be interested in it anymore. And he's right. As soon as it became mainstream, back to the whole startup thing, it wasn't, it wasn't as interesting to me anymore. But it was such a thrill at that time because every day what was happening was new. New. Well, it wasn't. Uh, it it be, it became not interesting to you anymore. But just real quick, uh, when the when the bubble happens and when it flips and everyone oh the internet is happening, did your status within the times change? Did all of a sudden they start to come to you guys and all of a sudden you're brought into bigger meetings and things like that? Well, no. And back to your earlier question, which I never really answered well. Uh, as as it became more important. So, for instance, when I did that Timothy McVeigh story, there was a, a reporter assigned to it from the paper from the military desk. And so whose story trumped mine? The military desk reporter for The New York Times. And on and on. That happened over and over again. They were We were rogue. We weren't in their face. We were down the street. They didn't understand, and we were, as far as they were concerned, the B team, and we were. So uh, basically, and, and then as soon as circuits came on the scene, and I'd have to look up what year that was, that completely obliterated us because circuits was the paper's acknowledgement that there was a revolution going on. So we got lost in translation because circuits bigfooted us, mm. even though we continued to exist for a while. And many of us started contributing to circuits. It wasn't easy. It wasn't just an easy transition like, oh, Matt Mirapol was writing about art, digital art for years. You would think it would be a no-brainer, easy transition over to the paper because he was one of the foremost authorities on that subject. But it wasn't the case. He did write for the paper for a long while, too. So it was it, we basically became obsolete, this sort of you know current refrain a constant refrain of my life story. And I don't say that with any lament because basically it just got to the point where we didn't integrate into the paper. Most of us, some of us did. Matt Richtel went on and won a Pulitzer Prize um, for his reporting about uh, texting and distraction. He's published novels and he's had a great career. Uh, but, but most of us didn't integrate into the paper itself. And that's when I went to MSNBC, which was another great, crazy uh, multimedia experiment, which at this time sounds extremely banal, but at the time was revolutionary. <laughs> like Microsoft and a traditional um, channel media company are going to create something. We don't know what it is. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wish I had those quotes at hand right now, but like all those quotes from like the announcement, is, they literally say, we don't know what this is, but we're very excited uh -huh. about it. <laughs> yeah. And I was the cross-platform sacrificial lamb. Meryl Brown, who was the founding editor of MSNBC.com, which was, of course, run by Microsoft out of uh, Washington State, uh, was in bed with NBC. And we were headquartered out in Secaucus, New Jersey. Again, keep them away from the main mothership in, at NBC, partially because of room, partially because of union. Um, and, and we, we were off site and we were creating this crazy, uh, I keep using the word crazy and I shouldn't, we were, we were creating this really exciting product, which was cross-platform. And I was the cross-platform person who was supposed to be talking about digital online and also go on television and talk about it. There weren't many people who were both at that point. And so I had a column called Napoli on the net. And I would go on television and talk about in my segments what I'd written about happened pretty quickly was that new management decided that this was ridiculous and that I was I became basically the Vanna White of the internet. I mm. would go your plane would crash 
And I would, you know, now we're going to go to our internet correspondent, Lisa Napoli, and she's going to show us five websites related to the plane crash. Uh, or or when the hanging Chad election happened in 2000, uh, this is my crowning achievement in life. Ali North and Paul Begala, let's go to Lisa Napoli, and she's going to mm. read us viewer email mm. who've been writing in about the hanging Chad debacle. And, you know, a different person would have run with it and become a superstar television person. But that that was not great for me, and I, I got... I got let go when there was a big reduction in staff um, after a couple of years. Uh, 2001 is when they reduced the staff and they started to realize that this experiment as in, its, in the form that it was, wasn't going to work. So that was, a, that was an interesting time. Um, before we sort of try to uh, bring this to a landing a little bit um, before we leave this era, essentially uh, at some point, you're covering the dot com bubble and the 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 madness of those times. Uh, I I don't I never know how to frame questions like this, but like I don't know if you were if you were speaking before a class of you know business school students or something like that. Like what would your what would your sort of brief summary be of the dot com era as a as a phenomenon or a story or or, or anything like that. You know, it was singular, and yet when I read history, which I've been reading now with the birth of CNN, many details of which I did not know, even though I worked there in the early days, when I look back at Henry Ford and the birth of mass production of automobiles, and when I look today at, I live in California, where the cannabis industry is exploding, uh, all these businesses share one thing in common, and that is it's a moment in time where people are sure they're going to get rich and they're throwing everything they've got into it. And some of them are going to get rich and some of them are going to lose everything and people's careers will be made. Superstars will rise to the fore. And I don't think there's any way to predict how that's going to happen. But I do think that it's interesting to go back and look historically at how these bubbles, even when they aren't overtly bubbled, but how these, these mania, these exciting times, what gives birth to them in history and how people ride them out. And almost always the people who ride them out are the people, you, you, there's no way, it's like finding a hit song or falling in love. If there was a formula, we'd all do it and everything would be great and bestseller. Uh, but if you, you, you look at people who jump in and are looking to make a quick buck and you look at the people who are in it for the long haul and the passion really does most often prevail. Um, I guess that's what I would say. I mean, I, I wrote a book about McDonald's too. And in its day, McDonald's was uh, a crazy fad that people couldn't believe that people were throwing all their money into, um, reading about Ray Kroc in the 60s and how he trounced around uh, selling franchises and basically borrowing other people's money and leveraging himself to the hilt. It was a really exciting and, and strange time. And when they went public, nobody could believe it. And, but yet the stock went, went nuts and continued to go nuts. Uh, I think if you look historically, there's so many through lines that, that are similar, but it's, it's tenacity and passion that usually when although you aren't asking me that specifically that's kind of i mean i guess my question is more um like you said it was singular at the very beginning of your answer and um when you when you think of those times now i mean there's no way that uh, there's always parallels to things but I'm, i'm wondering now that we live in a world where like it and technology is something like 30 percent of our economy and mm-hmm. everyone thought that that's where it was going. And then all of a sudden it blows up and everyone says, oh, it's a fad. It's a fad. Don't worry about it. Like when you think back on those times and being a part of it or even that as a story in terms of you covering it. Again, there's obvious parallels, but what what were like 
what were like the key lessons that you took away from that? Like, and you're sort of answering that in like the people that think they're going to be rich and the people that versus the people that have their, have the passion for it. And so now that, that tech is common tech is the main industry, maybe that our country is moving towards. Like when you think back Mm -hmm. on it, what, what, what's the, what's the main takeaway that, that you have from that period in context, in, in the lens of today? Oh man, that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) I can, I can retract that. I can retract that. That was a little, that was a little expansive. All right. Go ahead. But, but, but I think that that what you're saying, your question is really the answer. And that is that, uh, the world has completely changed and it's hard for us, even those of us who've watched it to get a sense of how much it's, you know, what it was, what it used to be like, just as it's hard. I mean, I also wrote a book about Bhutan, which has had, um, when I first went there, one main road going across the entire country mm-hmm. and had not had television until 1999 and was in this wacky rap rapid acceleration um, period of accelerated period of growth. And I always used to say, you know, it's too bad we can't all do that kind of time capsule, time travel back to see what things were like before IT ruled the world. Because if, if IT didn't rule the world, there was something similar to it that ruled the world. There was always, there's always been something that uh, was prevalent. And there, the challenges that we face because of technology we faced before the technology was mm-hmm. there. Um, it's just a matter of, of mechanics, really. Um, you know, studying fast food and McDonald's, you know, would take for granted that food, food is hauled in on a truck today mm-hmm. but it, or flown in, but it wasn't always. And so that was a matter of mechanics, how to get food around. And before that happened, you sourced it locally. That's how all McDonald's basically engines themselves back then so it's always a matter of how i think that's why i'm so fascinated by technology it's always a matter of what the technological challenge you are facing right now is and sometimes that technology in history was a road or communication you know there was a pony express people would bring letters to your door or transportation with trains and yeah sure yeah yeah and so all of those things, you know, we think it's also unique now, and it, it is, yes, but it's also not. Um, um, I, yeah. you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and actually I have it in my notes because I wanted to, to plug it, but um, your book is called Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made uh, McDonald's Fortune and the Woman Who Gave It Away. That's about the, the McDonald's story. Um, so I... You know, you you also you you continued in journalism, and you were at Marketplace, one of my favorite shows of all time. I remember you there. Um, I, the way that I like to wrap up is is to sort of talk about or to ask people what they're interested in today. Should we mention the the Gracefully podcast? Is is that a, a main project or a side project? One of my main projects right now. I mean, I, I mostly this. I mean, I, I'm do. I'll tell you, I started the podcast because I love radio, and ultimately, I wound up working in radio, and because these are issues that aren't discussed. Because well, well, tell talk uh, about gracefully. Yeah, uh, tell, tell us what gracefully is a podcast about. So I started a podcast called gracefully about growing old gracefully because I was watching all the older people in my life um, deal with the issues of aging. And I was dealing with the issues of aging from a different perspective. And, and I just think it's really important to talk about these issues, but it's very hard. Mainstream media doesn't want to acknowledge them and it's hard for people. I think there are fewer and fewer voices working as reporters uh, at my age. So I just thought having that, you know, people talk about diversity of perspective, which is enormously important. There's not a lot of diversity of age perspective. It's usually very quaint and relegated to that cute 85 year old person who's doing something amazing. And it's, I think that that's a super important topic to address, but yeah, I'm also obsessed with this Ted Turner and seventies, um, 1970s book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I'm writing about, about CNN. I, I I literally can't wait for that. Um, all right, so, so glad to hear you. Okay. let's uh, let's end with either 
this will be the simpler question than that other one that was too expansive or just as expansive. Um, but I, my, my new favorite final question is, what are you most excited about today? It could be technology. It could be, oh, Malik said he's into photography. It could be, if I had to ask you what you're most excited about, um, what, what would that be? Hmm. Well, besides the work that I'm doing, I just, love to swim and cook and Mm. hang out with friends and talk and read you know i just i love those things living living a good life living a good life living a good life living a good life not because you're rich because i'm certainly not that but but i've always chosen in my career the more interesting stories the more interesting thing the more interesting path not the more lucrative path and now as i get a little bit older and have seen all of this uh, more than ever, that's important to me. And the, as soon as you start having people in your life die, both your age and your elders, it really underscores the importance of that. While I'm talking to you, I'm looking out the window at this gorgeous swimming pool, this apartment building I've lived in for 14 years mm. in LA. And I'm thinking, I can't wait to go outside and swim with my old friend out there because <laughs> that's so important. Well, let me let me let you do that because I've taken up more more time than I promised. Um, the Gracefully Podcast. Look up Gracefully. Is it the Gracefully Podcast? No, it's gracefullyradio.com. Gracefullyradio.com or gracefully wherever search wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Lisa Napoli, thank you for that. Thank you for the Ray and Joan book. Thank you for uh, most especially remembering um, all of these great stories for us. Oh, and thank you for what you do. I can't be a enough about it. You're great. Thank you. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone, by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened.